Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Senator Jeff Flake of Arizona has distinguished himself as one of the few Republican voices in Congress who has been willing to take on President Trump. And for his efforts, he's now on his way out of the United States Senate, having announced that he won't run because he can't win a Republican primary. I sat down with Senator Flake the other day for my Axe Files TV show on CNN. Here's the full conversation. Senator Flake, great to see you. Um, You know, I remember hearing about you when you came to the House, and people said, this guy is going places. This guy is the face of the new conservative movement. (laughs) And now you're leaving, Uh, and not entirely voluntarily. Uh, Do you ever wake up in the morning and say, what happened? Yeah, I do. <laughs> yeah, I came, it's been 18 years, so I've been here a while, 12 years in the House, and now coming on six in the Senate. vigorous. <laughs> but, uh, no. Yeah, it, it went by fast. You had this, you, you posted this uh, video uh, in 2016 of elephants charging your Jeep, and it strikes me that that's sort of a metaphor yeah. here. <laughs> like the Republican Party is... Uh, is uh, not the Republican Party that you recognize. No, it, it, it's not. I have a, a carved uh, rhinoceros in my office, uh, rhino, Republican in name only. Uh, I guess I've just embraced it. You know? Which is so, kind of incredible because you were viewed as st- a staunchly conservative. Yeah, and, and I don't think I've lost that. I just uh, saw the Club for Growth rankings just came out for last year, and I scored 100%, one of three senators to do so. So. It's not that I've changed much, uh, particularly on the fiscal issues. It's just the party is a different party than it was when I uh, came in the year 2001. I I want to talk about that. You wrote this book, in fact, about that called Conscience of a Conservative. I read somewhere that you didn't tell your staff that you were working on this. It is a blistering indictment of, of, uh, of President Trump and Trumpism and the direction uh, of the party. Right. It's not just a, an indictment of, of Trump and Trumpism, although I certainly don't agree with the direction that the party's going now under the president. Uh, but we were headed this direction, you know, long ago. Um, you know, if I chart it, you know, through my time in the House, uh, we kind of stopped being the party of limited government, economic freedom, individual responsibility, and kind of drifted off to fight the culture wars. That's when you always know you're in a bad place. Uh, when you stop talking as a Republican about limited government or, uh, you know, limiting uh, spending, and you start talking about flag burning um, or other cultural issues uh, to, or, or immigration to try to make up for not being conservative fiscally, you have to emphasize other issues. And, you know, when we started doing that, uh, you know, 2006, 
uh, you know, Terry Schiavo issues and whatnot, I knew we were in trouble and uh, we lost the majority in the House and the Senate uh, at that time. But, you know, I, I look at, and you'll hear this from some of your colleagues, right. you look at the tax cuts, very, very uh, sh uh, str uh, strong wave of deregulation. Right. You know, I've, I've got my own issues with some of these things, conservative judges, and, uh, but you don't believe the president is a conservative. Well, no, uh, I don't. And being a you, conservative, you voted with him a bunch. You're probably in the top five of people who voted with the president well, in terms on policy. Of, when you look on the policies, most of what the Senate does in the first year of a uh, president's uh, time is vote on his uh, nominees. You know, the so-called executive calendar, uh, filling out his cabinet and then court picks as well. And I'm a conservative, and so I, I do vote uh, to put the judiciary in a more conservative direction. Uh, certainly deregulation. I'd voted some 30 times to repeal and replace Obamacare. Uh, why somebody would think that I would change that vote simply because the president comes along and agrees with our position, I don't know. So I, 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 I tend to, I, you know, a lot of this is the Congress uh, or conservatives driving this reform. But being a conservative is not just being conservative on policy. It's being conservative in comportment and demeanor and manners, and uh, we have anything but that in the White House right now. You know, it's, and you wrote about this in your book. I, I sat in, I, I just happened to be in Peoria. You know, they asked, right. will it play in Peoria? I was in a focus group uh, in Peoria the other day with a group of, uh, of people who had voted for Trump. Uh, they could not be more, they, they don't like his tweeting, right. but basically they say he's fulfilling his promises, and right. on this very issue that troubles you, his uh, sort of lack of decorum, they say, you know what, he says the stuff other people won't say, you know, and sometimes it's a little rough, right. but he, you know, at least he's authentic, you know, he, we know that he says what he thinks, and it's really an indictment of politicians. Yeah, it, you know? it is, um, uh, but words matter, words matter. When the president uh, talks about the press as the enemy of the people, for example, and then uh, talks about fake news, calling real news fake and fake news real, uh, that has ramifications, uh, particularly internationally, uh, when authoritarians everywhere now borrow that language to justify cracking down on dissent and legitimate opposition as fake news. Uh, when the president uh, talks about uh, Mexicans in a demeaning way, uh, about a Mexican judge calling him a, a Mexican in a pejorative way, or talks about Mexico paying for the wall, that has ramifications, long-term ramifications. We'll likely see it this year in Mexico yeah. with their national elections. Because they may elect a, a, a fervently anti-American right. president. That's right. And then the gains that we've made, and the gains that, uh, in terms of our relationship with Mexico, and the gains that Mexico has made in terms of privatization, rule of law, uh, security and intelligence sharing with us, that goes. Uh, and, and so th that's why... You know, when people say these tweets or this language, you know, it doesn't matter. It's just Trump being Trump. It does matter. I just uh, returned from a trip overseas for a week in the Middle East, uh, talking to our diplomats, talking to heads of state and, and others, and these things matter. These things matter, and, and it's not the way a conservative should act. You know, you use the word uh, authoritarians uh, for uh, regimes overseas, uh, but you also use the 
authoritarianism as a, a concern about what's happening here. In fact, you gave a speech on this freedom of the press issue. You and I had a little yeah. email exchange about it, and you, uh, you, you mentioned a phrase that the president uses about right. the media called enemies of the people, and you note that it was a phrase that Stalin right. uh, used. Do you think the president has authoritarian instincts, authoritarian impulses? Well, he certainly has a fondness for authoritarians <laughs> around the world that uh, I just don't understand. I think a lot of people have a hard time understanding and is not very healthy in terms of our position in the world. Uh, but I wasn't comparing the president to Stalin. Uh, nobody compares to Stalin. Right. Uh, but what I couldn't understand and still can't understand is why the president would borrow language so identified with Stalin, yeah. calling the press the enemy of the people. I think it's uh, fair to say he probably hadn't read that history. <laughs> uh, then his, his staff should tell him. Um, he, sh he should be told. Well, you part don't of the problem is that his staff can't tell him much. Uh, that, that is a problem. That is a problem. Um, How does this White House compare to other White Houses that you've worked with? Um, it's different. It, it really is. <laughs> Definitely. When you see the, the cabinet meetings, uh, it's kind of painful, frankly, to watch. Um, you the, mean the, the, the sort of the serial kind of, tributes uh, to... Yeah. Yeah, it, it is kind of painful. And, and what's more painful is to hear uh, some of my colleagues uh, in the Congress uh, use similar language. I mean, there's, we ought to have some kind of institutional pride, at least, uh, and some kind of prerogative here. We're the Article I branch. Uh, we shouldn't willingly uh, you know, give up the authority that we give up on a number of issues. Mm -hmm. and, and that's particularly bothersome to me. It's one thing for the cabinet and others to, you know, to exhibit that kind of behavior. It's altogether another for the Congress to do so. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that because I, I, I watched that speech uh, that you gave. I didn't see a whole lot of people sitting around you as you were giving the speech. And I was wondering, uh, because it, the speech was not just a chastisement uh, or condemnation of some of the things that the president has said and done, but it was also an admonition to your colleagues uh, to sta uh, stand up to that. Right. Uh, and I'm wondering, what, when you go back to the cloakroom after that, does anybody pull you aside and say, I'm glad you said that, or why are you embarrassing us? Uh, I, I think it, I do get a lot of people saying, I'm glad you say that, and, and I agree with you. Uh, but I do have a few uh, saying, you know, we, sh we shouldn't poke the bear like this, or uh, this doesn't do any good. Um, we've got to work with the president, and certainly we do. Uh, the president signs or, you know, vetoes legislation. Uh, but but I, I had a big problem when our leadership a while ago was saying, we can't bring an immigration bill to the floor unless the president agrees with it. Since when? I mean, the Congress passes legislation, the president either signs it or vetoes it. It's nice to have the president's support, but you can't always say we'll only move uh, well, you because, know, because when you do bring something uh, you know, to the administration after you've passed it, sometimes they find a way to like it. The Russian sanctions was a good example of that. The president said, no, don't do it. Uh, you know, I don't like this. We passed it 98 to 2, and he found a way to like it. But he hasn't found a way to execute them. No, that's true. And that's, uh, that's another issue we have with, uh, with exemptions and waivers. Um, the, uh, the, as, as I listen to you, it's try, you know, in the world of real politics, I come from politics. Right. Uh, you know, I, I agree with you that that's the role that the, the Senate should play. But it strikes me that 
the, they're making real politic judgments, which is to say, if I vote for an immigration bill, right. immigration having been stoked up as an issue, the base being very uh, uh, angry about immigration, uh, and the president then cuts the branch out off behind us, that I may be gone. And I, you may not be a great messenger for this because the fact is that you've spoken out on yeah. all of these things, and then you made a judgment that you could not win uh, your own party's primary in Arizona. Right. right. I certainly couldn't win as a Republican running the kind of campaign that I felt that I needed to run. Uh, I couldn't, I just couldn't uh, uh, see agreeing with some of the president's position and condoning his behavior. If that was the price uh, to win re-election, I simply wasn't willing to pay it. And, uh, and so I, I may not be the best messenger in terms of how to, to saddle that, uh, you know, some of these issues. Um, but, but, man, it, it's, it's painful to see the Congress uh, defer so much to the president. And, and I, I should say, this hasn't just been with this president. This has been a trend for decades. Um, things like the AUMF, or Authorization for Use of Military Force, uh, that's something the Congress should have insisted on. Uh, doing you know years and years ago, and some of us have been pushing it, but boy, uh, but there are two separate issues here because what seems to be motivating people now is fear, fear yeah. of ending up in a tweet, sure, fear of becoming uh, a target, sure. and a lot of that is new. Uh, that that's you had a confrontation before. with uh, the president before he became president, right. right before the convention last year, and you told him that he should tone down his yeah. rhetoric, and he told you. You're going to lose your reelection. Yeah. Basically, I assume that that was meant in a kind of menacing way. Oh, sure, sure. Um, that's kind of the mo. Um, at that time, he had made statements uh, when he launched his campaign on Mexican immigrants that was derogatory. Then he'd gone after John McCain and said that he uh, couldn't be a war hero because he was captured. And then he made this statement about the Mexican judge, saying that he couldn't judge fairly because of his heritage. The, the judge born in Indiana, I believe, yes. uh, calling him a Mexican. Uh, it, it just, uh, that's beyond the pale. And that, I mean, when you look at where our party needs to go in the future, if we want to be a governing majority, uh, we just can't do these things. We shouldn't do these things. You, um, uh, you mentioned Senator McCain, and I know that you're close. He's a yeah. senior senator. Uh, from your state. Uh, uh, at CPAC last week, the president uh, went after him. Right. He said, I'm not going to mention his name. We know Senator McCain is, 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 is fighting very, yeah. very serious uh, illness. What was your reaction yeah. to that? Same reaction I've had before. Um, you know, you can have disagreements with, uh, with people without going after them like that. I went to see John just a couple of weeks ago at his ranch in, in Arizona. He is working hard and, and uh, recovering. I hope that we have him back. But he's a genuine uh, hero in times Indeed. of war and peace. And uh, to go after him like the president has done on occasions is, is simply not fair. But the president does move the base. He does. Uh, you know, uh, I saw uh, the other day, I was looking at some polling, and uh, uh, Republican uh, ratings of uh, positive ratings of Putin have doubled from 17 yeah. to 34, and the, the ratings of the FBI have dropped precipitously. Yeah. Uh, so isn't this what your colleagues fear? It is, and I've seen some polling recently where you, you test the issues that people are concerned with, 
And you know, it depends on you know, what's hot at the moment, whether it's the economy or immigration. Or, but economy, immigration, jobs, education, those are the things that uh, perennially are mm -hmm. at or near the top. But uh, at the top right now, uh, with Republicans, the base is where you are with Trump. In terms of if you're, if you're an elected official looking for re-election or looking to gauge where the voters are, uh, the most important issue for Republicans that vote regularly in primaries are, are you with the president? And that's, uh, you know, that's something we haven't seen before to this degree, certainly. And I, I don't think it's a very healthy position to be in, to be wedded uh, to the president in his uh, positions um, or his uh, behavior. So I, I just think uh, long term for Republicans, that's not a good place to be in. Yeah, you mentioned that. Um, what do you think, the long in this book you suggest that, the, that this, this sort of nativist populist right. uh, uh, path that he's charting is, is a long-term disaster. It is. I, I mean, when, when you look just with regard to uh, Hispanic voters, for example, George W. Bush, 44% of the Hispanic vote. Um, if you look at every election cycle, we are, as a country are about 2% less white uh, than we were four years before. Um, obviously, we've got to find a way as a party to appeal to a broader electorate. Uh, and we went through this exercise after the Mitt Romney uh, loss in 2012. We had this autopsy and concluded we've got to appeal to a broader base. And then Trump you came along. You won the presidential and, and, election, though, and the, and the argument yeah, on the other side is, you know, if we had done that, we, we, we probably would have lost. You know, the, the problem is uh, you can win an election here or there, uh, but you can't stop the tide. And I think California certainly recognized that, uh, you know, in the mid-90s with uh, Prop 187 and the hardcore anti-immigrant uh, proposition that was on the ballot. It helped Republicans, you know, it helped the governor win re-election, and we've hardly seen a governor, or I'm sorry, a Republican win statewide elections since, and probably won't for a long time. So I, I, I'm not arguing that you can't gin up the base, get people excited, and win an election here or there. Uh, but long term, it's it's just uh, death for the party, and and it's not just you know with minority voters. It's young people. I mean, young people have been moving away from the party, walking away for a while now. I think right now they're at a dead sprint uh, when you you talk about uh, whether it's uh, gun issues or or uh, some of the other issues that we've talked about. Um, you know, they're wanting a Congress that can actually govern, and uh, that's that's what troubles me. You, uh, when you were in uh, the House, right. your, maybe your closest ally there was a congressman from Indiana named Mike Pence. Yeah. Uh, you voted together. You worked closely uh, together. You, you had come from similar backgrounds right. in terms of your policy work. Uh, do you keep in touch with him now? And I do. How do you, how do you, uh, how do you guys uh, deal with each other? Uh, because he seems to be as committed and as uh, defending of this president as anyone on the planet. Yeah, M Mike and I both ran think tanks, conservative think tanks in the 90s. We got elected at the same time. Uh, we were good friends, uh, um, still are, um, but for 12 years in the house, very, very close. Our families are close. And so uh, it's been a little different uh, to have in the White House. I've Has gone, he called you after some oh, of these yeah. speeches yeah. and the book and, and so we, on? Yeah, we talk. We, he comes to the Senate quite often. I'm glad he does. I'm glad he is where he is. I am. And uh, I, he's a good man. 
Is he just trying to survive this? Is you know, what's I, the deal here? I, I don't want to, to say, but I, I can say that he is intensely loyal, and he's never uttered one syllable uh, that uh, would lead anybody to believe that he wasn't being loyal uh, to this administration or this president. Um, and, and that uh, has he been loyal to you as a friend? Has he asked I'm you sure. to stop I, doing what you're doing? I'm, uh, I have no complaints. He's he's a good friend. You uh, wrote in this book. Uh, this politics was a generation in the making and would force us to our corners from which we would regard those who believe differently from us, not merely as our political opponents, but as a sworn enemy. Other Americans, the, the enemy. How does one accede to governing with the enemy and will one's base stand for it? Yeah. How, that, go ahead. That, that, that's really, really troubling. We've seen this drift uh, where it's not just those across the aisle uh, you know, that I have a disagreement with, but it's uh, the enemy. And I, I got a real uh, taste of it when President Obama was elected not long thereafter. He invited several of us to play basketball, um, you know, on the court on the South Lawn. Yeah. So uh, uh, CNN, I think, and other outlets were reporting who had been invited. I got to the White House. I was in the basement there, you know, putting on my basketball shoes. And, and uh, I got a call that was patched through from Capitol board switchboard or something, a woman who was just hysterical. And uh, she had seen reports that I was playing basketball with President Obama, and she was just crying, saying, don't play basketball with that man. <laughs> and uh, it was just this, you know, this vitriol that... Uh, well, you that got it when all, you, you, you it, tweeted something yeah. nice about Tim Kaine when he got, yeah, I, uh, when he got named to, the, to be the vice presidential nominee with, with Hillary Clinton. And... And you got a lot of, uh, a yeah, lot of feedback from that one. Remarkable. I I'd simply said that, the, jokingly, I said, now I'm trying to find ways that I hate Tim Kaine, but I'm drawing a blank, and he's a good man. And uh, he, I, I got, boy, the, the number of emails and texts and tweets that uh, were upset at that. And perhaps the, when I felt it most uh, was when Gabby Giffords uh, was shot. And... Uh, we left an empty chair for her at the State of the Union just after the, the incident. And a year later, she came back to Capitol Hill uh, to retire, but was at the State of the Union. And so I sat with her. She was, she's still a good friend of mine. And uh, she was unable, uh, given her condition still, to stand up uh, when you she wanted her. to. And so I, I would help her up, which yeah. left me, the lone Republican, standing uh, to the Democratic applause lines that, uh, when President Obama spoke. And I immediately got texts and emails uh, you know, the rest of the night. Why are you standing? For Why a simple standing? act of, and, of decency. Uh, this, is just, this is out of control. It but really you, you've experienced this in a much more visceral and frightening way. You were on the field last June when, yeah. uh, when uh, the, for, with the Republicans right. practicing for the annual baseball game, Republican-Democrat baseball game, and... Uh, you came under fire, and this was the the uh, the shooting in which uh, Representative Scalise right. was shot. What? Tell me about that day. You know that I've been doing this baseball game. It's one of the best institutions in Congress, bipartisan. Well, why is that? It's it's just you know you play against each other, Republicans and Democrats, but it's very much a, a bipartisan affair, and we raise a lot of money for charities, and you get ten thousand people on a you know a normal year, twenty thousand this past year. Uh, watching you at National Stadium. Yeah, that's it's, that, it's, it's, it's every, reliving every, your childhood. Every, every guy had a childhood. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's just wonderful. Uh, but uh, so I've been doing this. This is my 18th year this year. 
but we were out there and uh, all of a sudden, you know, a shot rang out and we were trying to figure out what it was. And immediately uh, thereafter, a volley of uh, gunfire. And I just remember uh, of all the, the memories, uh, whether it was, you know, going out to Steve Scalise after and having to plug up the, the wound in his hip and... Uh, yeah, well, um, you, what, you, you, you ran over there and, and uh, you were trying to tie off the bleeding until the... Yeah, Brad, I, I got out there first and then Brad Winstrup came. He was a doctor, fortunately a medic uh, who knew what he was doing. I didn't. Uh, but uh, then calling Steve's wife uh, afterwards to let her know that her husband had been shot and wanted her to hear it from somebody else in the news. When you uh, saw him on the ground there, did you... Oh, it was, it was awful. Uh, we were in the dugout, um, part of the time applying a tourniquet to another uh, staffer who had been shot, um, but not, not being able to get out to Steve uh, because gunfire was still raging overhead. But, I, but the, the most enduring memory I have of that is when the volley, the first volley rang out, the one that, that when they got Steve, um, I turned to the dugout, to the only place you could run to, and I could see bullets pitching uh, on the gravel uh, around or in front of where I had to run. But I just, I, I still remember thinking at that time, why us? Why here? Really? I mean, can somebody look out at a field, uh, you know, with middle-aged men playing baseball and see the enemy? Mm -hmm. It just, uh, I just remember that thought lingered, you know, how, why? And, uh, you know, our, our politics has come to a pretty bad place. It turned out the shooter had a list of Republicans that he didn't like or didn't like policies that uh, the party had adopted. And uh, it's, it's just an, an awful place we're in right now. You, uh, w w this discussion of guns and, and right. gun violence is very, very uh, uh, ripe now. Uh, again, sadly, because yeah. of the events uh, in Florida, uh, that shooter uh, used uh, an AR-15, right. a, a, a semi-automatic weapon. Uh, the shooter who shot at you guys uh, also used a, a semi-automatic, it was an SKS-style Russian weapon. Why should these guns, I mean, you grew up around guns, right. I assume, because you I grew did. up in rural Arizona. Why should assault weapons be so readily available? Well, I, I don't think that they should be, and the one thing that we'll be introducing uh, this week, uh, myself and Diane Feinstein, is uh, something to lift the, the prohibition uh, to age 21. Uh, this, this shooter in Florida, 19 years old, was able to uh, purchase an AK, or I'm sorry, an AR-15, uh, when he couldn't purchase a handgun. Uh, I don't think you can explain why should have such ready access to an assault-type weapon. Um, President and, uh, has hinted that he'd be for he, he did, that, uh, and then he, he had he lunch may, with the NRA yeah, folks. May, they, they're very much against it. Yeah, he may have pulled back a little on that. We'll see uh, as we go through the week. I, I hope that he hasn't. I hope that he sticks to it. Um, and I, it I'll also reintroduce uh, with Susan Collins the no-fly, no-buy. Uh, something that simply makes Explain too much that. sense. Uh, if you're on a no-fly list uh, where you, you can't get you're on an airplane. You're viewed as a security risk. You have a security risk, but uh, there's no prohibition right now. That, that, that ought to keep you on a similar list not to be able to purchase a weapon, I, I would think, but we haven't been able to get that passed yet. I, I hope we're able to. Uh, I don't know what we'll be able to do this week. I, I sense that we've 
we may have crossed some kind of Rubicon here. Have these kids made an yeah, impact? Yeah, you bet they have. Um, they, they're articulate and they're committed and they, they have access to social media that, uh, that really has changed the game. And so I hope that, that uh, they, they keep at it. Uh, I talked to one of the victim's fathers uh, just last night and it just, just devastating. And, uh, but they're, they're really trying to make something good come out of this and I, I commend them for it. You uh, probably heard uh, Wayne LaPierre's speech at CPAC or read about it in which he called uh, these efforts and I presume yours uh, would be included in that as sort of a socialist wave uh, to make you less free. I thought about you when I saw that because uh, the word freedom appears in your right. book probably more than any other and uh, I, I'm pretty sure you don't consider yourself a socialist. No, no, uh, I, I, I'm a supporter of the Second Amendment. I do think that... Uh, you have a pretty good uh, rating with the NRA. Uh, yeah, I, so I grew up in a rural area and I, I don't want to, to make criminals out of those who sell a 22 caliber rifle to their friend uh, or something like that. I mean, but we, we can have restrictions. We do have restrictions. Age restrictions on handguns, for example. Uh, we have restrictions on automatic uh, weaponry. You have to have an increased security level or go through a, a additional hoops for that. So we have common sense restrictions. Although these bump stocks can, can convert these semi You bet, and that, that's uh, something that I'm co-sponsoring as well uh, with Martin Heinrich uh, legislation to, to stop any mechanism that uh, basically makes a semi-automatic act like an automatic. You know, you mentioned all of these things. Mm -hmm. uh, they probably all poll astronomically right. well. Uh, and we've seen this before after Sandy Hook, Mm -hmm. uh, another horror, right. uh, and we should point out that there are people, there's violence all over the right. country every single day. Um, the, the mass murders are the ones, and particularly with children, that get uh, the most uh, attention, but nothing happened. Yeah. Uh, what, 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 what will be different now? Yeah. I, I, you know, having these high school kids um, who can uh, speak and speak articulately, um, and can organize uh, through social media. Their parents are very organized as well. Uh, that seems to have uh, been uh, maybe the missing ingredient. And if it's sustained, and it will need to be sustained, um, then I think we can make some of these common sense changes that we should make. So I, I Can you I do it without it. the president? Does he, I mean, um, obviously he'd have I, I to sign that, anything you yeah, do. Yeah, I think the president will come around, yeah, but I think we, we may have to move forward recognizing that the president may not agree until it gets to his desk. Um, he seems to have backed out, backed down, and, and we've experienced this on immigration as well. Um, the, what we talk about on Capitol Hill is, is it the Tuesday Trump or the Thursday Trump? Um, you know, the Tuesday Trump being very accommodating on, on DACA, for example, and, and the solution there. But then the Thursday Trump having listened to some of the base who say you can't do this, uh, not being as accommodating. And so uh, we, you know, we, we may see that play out uh, with the gun issue as well. I hope we don't, but I think all we can do in Congress is say, hey, we're the Article I branch. We move ahead. Let's put something on the president's desk. Well, let me just ask you about the NRA. Uh, you know, when I, I mean, through most of my life, they were right. seen as the voices of sportsmen and hunters right. and so on. Is that, what happened to the NRA? Yeah. Um, you know, I've been a member in the past, in the far past. Uh, 
but they're, they're a very powerful organization in terms of organizing during campaigns, and uh, Republicans recognize that. Uh, but I think standing in the way of common sense reforms uh, has really uh, uh, hurt them in the eyes of a lot of people, and uh, I think justifiably so. Um, uh, to, to argue everything is a slippery slope, and if we do this, all of a sudden, every, you know, all they the guns are going to be taken away, and uh, this kind of apocalyptic, uh, dystopian view of the future uh, with government coming in and, and taking all your guns. I, I do think that we can have common sense reforms that, uh, that still honor uh, the Second Amendment and your right to bear arms. They, uh, they're enthusiastic, and the president apparently is, uh, about this idea of uh, arming teachers in schools. Yeah. What is your uh, view of that? Less so. Um, uh, the, you know, there are times when you have teachers that qualify or certified or seek such certification that may make sense, but, but as a, you know, as, as a solution to this problem, I, I don't see it. Well, it, it, the question is, could it, could it actually exacerbate things if, uh, if, if it, schools become sort of shooting out? I personally know, I think back to what I was like as a student, I think if my teachers were armed, I would have been in great danger. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but I mean, it just seems like a bad idea to yeah, have. Yeah, I, I think overall, I, I'm not excited about it. I hope we don't uh, push too far that direction. Local schools and states may want to experiment and, uh, and do some things, and I, I think that that's proper. Uh, but as a national policy, uh, sometimes it's, it's more of an excuse not to do the things you, you know you should do. Um, and, and distract uh, people's attention. And I, I hope we don't do that on this issue. You uh, tell me about Snowflake, Arizona, and, and we should point Center out the that universe, the flake right? in—I'm sure it is—that uh, the flake in Snowflake is no coincidence. That's right. your flakes. Uh, your right. great great grandfather came and and essentially settled. He did. Uh, that 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 area. Uh, he was sent there by Brigham Young. Yes. Yeah, 1878, he was told to go colonize Arizona. And uh, so he went from southern Utah to northern Arizona. Legend has it, he tromped around for six months and went back and told Brigham Young, there's nothing worth settling down there. <laughs> but he got sent back. Yeah, he said, uh, sell all you have and go and look a little harder. And uh, he did, he, he bought the valley where Snowflake now is. And uh, then Erastus Snow, one of the Mormon apostles, uh, who was kind of over the colonization of Arizona, came down to, to look at the settlement, and he asked uh, if it had a name yet, and my great-great-grandfather said no. He said, call it Snowflake for the two of us. And uh, so that's where I grew up, and it was really a, an idyllic uh, way to grow up. I had ten brothers and sisters, grew up on a cattle ranch, uh, just lost the end of my one yes. index finger, so I made out quite well, actually. Uh, it, was a, it was a good way to grow up, and I had a lot of wonderful examples of uh, people like my father. Uh, was a mayor of Snowflake. It involved civically in many other ways. My uncle Jake Flake from Snowflake was the Speaker of the House in Arizona. A long tradition of public service, uh, but in, a, in a, such a good way. Uh, these were men who, and women, who uh, you know, knew that you, you had to get things done. He grew up you know, on a ranch. Well, half and, the and town you, was Democrat you, and half the town yeah. was Republican by, by ordinance of... <laughs> yeah, at the, at, in the late uh, 1800s, uh, the Mormon church was concerned that you might have too many uh, people in the church in one party or another, and when an administration changed, it might put the church in a, in a bad way with the administration. So they famously went to a lot of congregations in Utah and Arizona 
and said basically those sitting in the left pews today register Democrat, those sitting in the right, or vice versa. So you still have some flakes in the Democrat. Oh, yeah. We, in, in Snowflake, it was if you I mean with a capital east, F. East of Main Street, you're Democrats. <laughs> west of Main Street, you're Republicans. And the flakes were east of Main Street. And uh, so it, it really held until this last generation. My father, he was a registered Democrat. Until my mother, when she was courting him, said, you know, Dean, I think you're really more of a Republican. <laughs> but it didn't matter as much then. And, and certainly, uh, all I ever witnessed was Republicans and Democrats working together and, and getting things done. And that's been kind of the example I've had. Uh, and that's the example I think a lot of people have at the state level, certainly the local level, and wonder why in the world in Washington we've become so tribal. I have to ask you this. I, I read, uh, you wrote that your, your I think your cousin Stan, is that right, was Speaker of the House in Arizona, and he wrote this groundwater right. regulation that requires that you have to have 100 years of groundwater to, to, to start a development. Right. And I thought to myself, well, the, the flakes are for regulation here. <laughs> so it made right. me want to ask you, what is, isn't there a need for those kinds of regulations, common sense regulations? Oh, sure, you bet. Uh, with regard to Arizona, you know, water is king there. Right. And, but, uh, but there are all kinds of issues yeah, like that and, around and the country. Are. Some are different there, by, by region. I, I would argue that the federal government has moved far too far on some of those regulations. In Arizona, for example, dealing with, uh, you know, these dust storms that come through. Uh, these, they call them Habibs or, or whatever that, that roll through every year and we just haven't been able to get the EPA to recognize for decades that that's a dust storm and it comes through regardless and, and not to penalize Arizona because we've had a dust storm. So there are things that the federal government in particular has, has gone too far on that we've needed to roll back and we have on some of those. But we, we need to strike a balance particularly with the environment. Um, and I, I grew up... You believe like climate said, change is real. You bet. You bet. And uh, you, anybody who, who doesn't, uh, uh, hasn't been experiencing uh, the outdoors as much as some of us have over the past uh, a couple of decades, and, and you see it. And uh, um, there are a lot of things that need to be done in that regard, but we've got to do it in a smart way. Let me ask you about that finger. My, my, my buddy Rahm Emanuel, who you yes, served I, with, yeah. he was missing we, half of his middle finger. We compared from a, notes sometimes. But, yes, yeah, oh, and uh, I know President Obama once said it rendered Rahm mute that he lost half his <laughs> middle finger. But how, how did you, uh, how, yeah, well, how did was, you lose your I always said if you didn't finger. lose at least the end of one digit, you didn't work very hard. My, my dad was missing this three, and my brother this one, and uncle John this Tester, one. John uh, Tester. Oh, yeah, yeah. From, uh, but, uh, but mine, I was only five years old, and we were working on a, what's called a windrower or swather, like a combine that cuts alfalfa. They were removing the, the long blade, and I put my finger where I shouldn't have at mm -hmm. age five, and it snipped the end right off. Uh, I don't remember too much. And you became a point. rancher at that yeah, point. Yeah, but my dad grabbed the finger, uh, the end of the finger, put it on the end of my finger and wrapped it with a hanky and put me in the truck and finished the job and then drove me to the do doctor in Snowflake and he sewed it back on only to, it fell Didn't off. Take, huh? No, it fell off later in, the, in a swimming pool, Snowflake's only swimming yeah. pool. And I just remember uh, yelling to my, my mom who was on the side and you know, I have 10 siblings around. And I said, Mom, Mom, my finger fell off, my finger fell off. And, she looks around as only the mother of 11 can do, and she said, shh, <laughs> don't tell anybody. Yeah. Uh, but, 
so, it, but it was a wonderful way uh, to grow up, and uh, I, I learned a lot, and I learned how to work, and um, I learned how to get along. Certainly, with uh, with ten siblings, you you need to do that. Yes, you also uh, worked with immigrants, and you yeah. write in in your book about that uh, as well. And uh, you you in fact uh, talked about being a decoy to try and keep. Uh, the feds who were flying over yeah. uh, from rounding up the immigrants who worked on your ranch. It was interesting at that time, I should point out, it wasn't illegal to hire them. It was illegal for them to be in Arizona, but there was very little um, deterrence at the border at all. And no, not even a barbed wire fence in most places. Uh, so people would tend to come across the border and then go home for birthdays or anniversaries or uh, then the season ended. Um, and the Border Patrol actually would patrol northern Arizona and the farms and round people up every once in a while, which uh, was not good for us, the kids, because then we had to move all the sprinkler pipe or milk all the cows. Uh, uh, we didn't have much help. And did you get, uh, did you get to know the folks? I did. I did. And I, I wrote about one, uh, Manuel in particular. He was a mechanic uh, and worker on our farm for 24 years. And... Uh, and I, I talked about how he had come illegally. Initially, he ended up marrying a citizen and uh, uh, getting his green card. Uh, he still lives in Snowflake. I last saw him this summer, this past summer, at my father's funeral. Um, he, uh, good, a good man, raised six children of his own in Snowflake who have all participated in the American dream. And uh, I've always said, if you, you worked with, with migrants, uh, immigrants like Manuel, it's tough to look at people who came across illegally uh, as a criminal class. Uh, they were just trying to make life better for themselves, and in turn, uh, they've made life better for all of us. Um, and sometimes, uh, you know, and I, I'm all for, for change in our immigration policy, making sure that we have people who can come here to help with our economy. Uh, if we need to change, uh, you know, um, family-based immigration, uh, tweak it, that's fine. Let's have that discussion. But there should always be room in America for people whose only credential is uh, a strong back or a willingness to work. And so many of our own ancestors, including mine, uh, came under that premise. And, and I think uh, if, if I have a, a problem with where the party now is, uh, it's that. And uh, I, I wrote in the book that uh, uh, you know, when Hillary Clinton picked her running mate, Tim Kaine, um, he went uh, soon after that to Florida, I think, for a naturalization ceremony. And there he was speaking in Spanish, uh, movingly about uh, the immigrant experience and those who are now getting citizenship. And I, I had the feeling at the time, I thought, that should be us. That should be Republicans. That's where we've been. And it just it made me sick. And I, I just think that we, we've lost something as a party. Uh, becoming such a nativist group and demeaning immigrants and, and uh, devaluing immigration. You are in the middle of this uh, fight right now about DACA. Right. We have uh, 800,000 and, and more, if you don't count those who haven't right. registered for DACA, whose, whose uh, futures are very much uh, in doubt. Uh, and you had this, uh, you voted for the president's tax bill, and at that time, you said you had an understanding with the White House right. that they would work this through with you. Senator McConnell offered you and others a week of debate, which you had, which failed. Uh, where are we now? 
Well, uh, the courts have just come out and said the yes. Supreme Court isn't taking it up, so it likely gives you a little. There's, there's a little time, which uh, is problematic because we typically don't work unless there's some kind of deadline there. This needs to be fixed. It needs to be fixed on a permanent basis. These kids should be put on a path to citizenship. I, that's the ultimate solution. Uh, but I've come to conclude after this last debate that the best we can do right now um, is to offer them at least some assurance. I, I'm inter introducing, along with Heidi Heidkamp, legislation that would uh, extend DACA or codify DACA for three years uh, and provide some border security funding, what the president has requested, basically three years. So we're calling it the three for three bill. I think that's the, that's the, the, the best we can do uh, for legislation that we can agree on and move ahead. But as you said uh, earlier, the Senator McConnell, uh, right. Speaker Ryan have both said, well, we, we will support a bill that the president supports, right. meaning we're not going to make our people walk the plank on an immigration bill and have the president right. then say that we are, uh, we are abetting right. uh, law-breaking. Well, I, I hope now the president was saying if, if we're going to give uh, citizenship or a path to citizenship for these kids, then we need to deal with chain migration, diversity visa, and some of these other things. Now, that if, if we aren't now, if we're simply saying we're going to extend DACA without a path to citizenship for a three-year period, then I think a, a equitable trade is to say we'll give the president what he's asked for for a three-year period uh, in terms of border security funding. And uh, so I, I hope that's something that we can move on. And do you have any indication that the White House would be receptive to that? Uh, no, no. And uh, they probably don't talk to you very much. Do they? <laughs> oh, we do uh, actually more than than people think. But uh, I'm, I'm hopeful that that our leadership will also say, we don't want this issue hanging over during the midterms. Uh, this is not good for anybody. If we can uh, punt it um, and get this dealt with, give some surety for a couple of years at least, let's do it. If the president had blessed this bipartisan bill, there were 20 something of you, yeah. in Democrats and Republicans who had a solution uh, and it got 56 votes, I think, in right. the Senate, you needed 60. If right. he had said, this is good legislation, would that have passed? Yeah, I think it would have, it would have. Um, I, I, I wish that he had, and we had a meeting at the White House where it seemed that he was uh, willing to take you know, what we put forward, what we could agree on in, in the Senate that could get 60 votes. Uh, it's not gonna be everything the president wants, but uh, it would have uh, met some of his priorities at least. So I, I think it, it certainly would have. And even if we could have changed the order in which these were voted on, uh, because we, we voted on this and then we voted on the president's preferred approach, which only got 39 votes. Had we had that vote first, then maybe uh, we could have gotten 60 votes uh, on the other approach. His preferred approach includes cutting back on right. legal immigration. That's correct. And I, I think that that would be a tremendous mistake. I, I think that the president has made some good moves in terms of making our economy better in terms of regulatory reform, the more conducive tax and regulatory structure, which will aid us. Uh, trade policy is another story, but one thing we desperately need is a workforce. And we've got to have uh, more robust legal immigration in the future. We're an aging country, we so are. these young we immigrants are, are actually re-infusing energy. They are, and we just, uh, you know, our, our we just aren't having big enough families. We're doing our best, you know. Yeah, you're, you're <laughs> doing fine. your part. You're doing your part. But, but uh, we need... You're making uh, me feel guilty. <laughs> we need uh, more legal immigration, and we can have uh, 
um, you know, debate on how that is structured, how much family-based immigration, how much, uh, you know, employment-based or skill-based. Uh, let's have those debates, but let's recognize that we're going to need uh, very robust legal immigration in the future. You also uh, were uh, uh, strongly uh, opposing of the so-called Muslim ban right. uh, that the president uh, uh, tried to install at the beginning of, right. of the administration. I, I want to read uh, this from your book. You said, when we say no, Mus no Muslims or no Mexicans, we may as well say no Mormons because it is no different. That kind of talk is a dagger in the heart of Mormons. It's a dagger in my heart. Yeah. Explain that. Well, when the president came out in uh, December of 16, um, and some people have said, well, you did, really didn't say it, but he did. He said, we want a total and complete ban on Muslims right. entering the country, a Muslim ban. And I thought that that was awful. Uh, I don't know how anyone could stand up and say that that's where we as a country ought to go, or that that uh, is consistent with our Constitution and our values. And so I, that week, actually, went to a mosque and... and and gave a, a talk there um, talking about similarities of Mormons and Muslims, I guess, if you will, or the persecution that there's been in the past, and, and just expressing some solidarity uh, with those who were under attack here. And uh, uh, one, I, I, I think it's, it certainly doesn't uh, comport with our values, uh, but it doesn't comport with our security needs either. Uh, it's just not smart to, to have a ban like this, and, and the way it morphed into the travel ban, it may be constitutional, but it isn't wise. And, and I saw... Do you think it was still motivated by the same impulse? Yeah, it's hard to say, uh, hard to argue that it's not, mm -hmm. um, when you look at the countries affected. And uh, I, you know, look, for example, with regard to Iran. Um, one thing that's bothered me there is uh, we, we, we try to say, you know, we're with the people of Iran uh, when the protest against the government there, and, and uh, I think we should stand with them. But part of standing with them is to stand with them on other issues as well. And one, we have uh, Iranian Americans who are, have contributed to this country and are loyal Americans uh, who now are having their travel restricted and their families travel restricted uh, from Iran to the United States. Um, and, and, but it fits some kind of narrative we're being tough on, you know, immigration or security issues when, when really, in many ways, we're simply punishing people that we ought to be helping. Do you think it creates a, 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 a more uh, acrid environment in the country? I saw this morning a new study by the uh, ADL saying that uh, acts of anti-Semitism were up 57% uh, in the country. Are, are we becoming a more, uh, less tolerant? Yeah, I, I do. I think it, I mean, if, if the parties are fighting like this, if uh, you refer to your political opponents as losers or clowns, um, as we've seen, um, then it, uh, you know, this polarization spreads as well, and you see it among ethnic groups and uh, among people at large, and that's, that's not a healthy situation. You know, uh, uh, I want to ask you about your, uh, a fellow Mormon, uh, Mitt Romney, mm -hmm. who's running in uh, Utah now and very likely going right. to win. Uh, what's striking about what's going on in Congress now is there are some people who've been outspoken. You've been outspoken. Senator McCain has been outspoken. Um, uh, for a while, Senator Corker was outspoken right. and then kind of pulled back as he was reconsidering his 
political options, but nobody who is actually, uh, you know, and, and I hope Senator McCain is there for a good long time, but his prospects are uncertain. Uh, he might have been willing to follow through. That's his nature. Mm -hmm. But uh, what, what impact will Mitt Romney have uh, in, in I, the Senate? I think it'll be a, a big impact. I'm a big fan, a good friend of Mitt Romney, and I, I certainly encouraged him uh, to run. Uh, he didn't need my encouragement. Uh, but I think that Mitt will be a strong, independent voice uh, here in Washington. I don't think he's going to go out of his way to criticize the president, uh, but he'll certainly not shy away from, from doing it uh, And he has some political insulation he to does. do that because he's well grounded in He is. Utah. He is. Utah has been, yeah, I, I think he'll be just fine there, and I'm, I'm glad that he's going to be here. He'll come to the Senate with immediate you know, credentials and gravitas, uh, he'll make a difference. And, and uh, on, on issues like trade and, and security and uh, America's role in the world, um, he's going to be a, a very effective and needed voice. You, uh, uh, looking back on your career, there's been an evolution in your career. And you were, you were a very much uh, considered an ideologue when you came to that. And you wrote about that as well, that... Mm -hmm. There are many, many votes, uh, almost all of them on spending, but uh, where uh, Flake appeared almost alone in the roster of right. no votes. Um, do, do you look back at that with any any nuanced analysis? Would you say, yeah. I wish I would have done something differently? Yeah, I, I, I'm still the lonely end of uh, votes here. You seem uh, to enjoy in, in it. Senate, yeah, and that's fine. Um, but I, I do look at a few, and I mentioned one in the book uh, with regard to the bailout. Um, the tarp for, to, to, tarp. to, to prop and, up Wall Street after the collapse and, of Lehman Brothers in yeah, 2008. And that was an example of uh, me uh, hoping yes and voting no. Uh, because Which is I had the luxury of, a sport of doing up there, so. isn't it? Yeah, a lot of people yeah, do you that. You bet. You bet. And I, I like to. I mean, hoping let me, yes, let me, let me, you wanted it to pass. You just didn't want your name. On that's it. right. That's right. And I, I mean, there are some things that I was very glad to be on the lonely end, and and uh, very vociferously, um, like uh, the prescription drug benefit. I still think that was an awful thing to do in terms of our long-term fiscal uh, climate to add that much in unfunded liabilities and. And on that, I was uh, proud. Well, what about to, now? I mean, oh, no. this tax bill that you voted for added a trillion and a half, and then there was a spending bill you didn't vote for that will add yeah, hundreds the, of, the of the billions thing, more. I'm a, I am a supply sider. I do believe that uh, if you have enough to make up tax a, million, a trillion I do, and a half. Over, over, over that time, yes. Um, and we've got to have, if we're going to compete internationally, I mean, I would have written this tax bill differently. I, if, if it were up to me, I would have left the individual rates alone and just lower the corporate rate because that's where we were really uncompetitive. If we're going to compete globally, and we have to, uh, then we've got to have a conducive tax environment. And we didn't have it. We have a more conducive tax environment now. But then the spending bill, oh my goodness. Uh, it seems the only thing we can do on a bipartisan basis now is spend money we don't have. And if you spread enough around, then, uh, then you can get bipartisan support. And unfortunately, I think this will come back to bite us over time. You know, on the TARP vote, I, w I was familiar with it because I was right. working for Senator Obama at the time. And he was running for president. Right. In the midst of running for president, right. he tried to help and yeah. brought Democrats along, which wasn't a popular right. thing. I, uh, I mentioned do. that in the book. Would that happen today? I, I have a hard time seeing that happening today where where uh, John McCain and Barack Obama suspended their political campaign, the presidential campaign, 
to come and actually round up votes on their side. And uh, I talk about the book, John McCain, you know, calling me and calling my colleagues and, and rallying us all to the cause there. And, yeah. and uh, he didn't exactly get did, you over did, the finish he, line. He but. didn't. Uh, and, and uh, I, you know, that was uh, one vote I regret. So let because me I, I think I, I basically, you know, relied on my colleagues to do what I knew we had to do. I, I, I felt justified at the time saying I, I haven't voted for spending or uh, regulatory measures that put us in this bind. And I justified the vote uh, for that reason. But, uh, but it, in the end, we were where we were and it needed to be done. A few months later, the whole mess was dropped in our laps and in President Obama's right. lap. And uh, I remember every day waking up and going to meetings about how we were going to keep the economy from sliding into right. a second Great Depression. And he, he, he activated the second half of TARP. Um, and, uh, and we had the Recovery Act, which uh, to try and jolt the economy. Yeah. Um, we didn't get... Uh, any real right. support from Republicans. And, that, and that, that part of the act I still don't think was the greatest idea. I don't think we needed that uh, stimulation. I don't think that it was very effective. Well, that we could have an but, economic yeah, debate. We, we can. But, we can. But it seemed, like, it seemed like policy, strategic policy, and Senator McConnell spoke to it that right. we didn't want to give him any support because that would signify yeah. that he'd figured it out, that yeah. he, we, he had helped overcome this gridlock in Washington. That would have been a political yeah. Yeah. victory for him. And that was true throughout the eight years mm -hmm. of the Obama mm -hmm. presidency. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something that uh, I think all of us, uh, certainly the, the, in this environment with President Trump, uh, people will say, well, if you oppose the president, if you're opposed to his, some of his policies and his behavior, it should be your role to oppose him on everything. Um, but uh, I, I don't think that's the case. I, I think that, uh, you know, when people criticized Mitch McConnell for making that statement that our role is to make Barack Obama a one-term president and to just try to hobble him in, in that regard. Uh, I, I will still vote with this president when I think he's right and oppose him when I think he's wrong. And I, I think that that's my responsibility in the Senate. You mentioned... Um in, in the book, uh, Senator McConnell's uh, blockade, essentially, on the nomination right. of a replacement for Justice Scalia, leaving the seat open for a whole yeah. year. Uh, he said the other day in an inter interview that it was justified because now there's a Republican-nominated nom uh, justice in that seat going to rule on, for example, uh, a case involving labor unions that's going to be helpful to the Republican Party. What do you think about that? It, it, did did, did that, the ends justify the means? And isn't, aren't we setting a norm now that will become yeah, I, I, damaging I do, to the institution? Yeah, I'm, I'm very worried about that. I, I mean, if you look over history, um, you could say that he was following precedent in a way. You'd have to go back to You'd 1888 have to, look really hard. To, to find uh, you know, an example of uh, the opposition controlling the, uh, you know, a, a similar scenario playing out. Uh, but but I, I do, I, I'm very concerned about how polarized this has been. I, I was in Washington not as a member of Congress, but living here in the late uh, 80s, early 90s, during the Clarence Thomas uh, and even the Judge Bork hearings, and to see how controversial those nominations were, yet no senator thought of filibustering uh, or opposing the president's executive calendar in that way. 
but then when President uh, George W. Bush was elected, a lot of Democrats said he's not a legitimate president. Therefore, we can justify blocking his uh, you know, executive calendar, cabinet members, judges. And then Republicans, when they were in a position, they've returned the favor, and we've been like this ever since. And it's, it's not a good situation. Now, Republicans may say, hey, we pulled a fast one here. We've got a conservative on the court. I, I'm a big fan of Judge Gorsuch. I'm glad he is where he is. But, um, you know, what goes around comes around. And um, if we have a situation where we, you know, use these procedural measures to, to block, we can expect the Democrats to do as well. And I, I don't think over time we're, we're setting very good precedent. Is there an answer to this sort of spiral that we're in? I, I don't know. I don't know that we can change it with rules. It's just got to be behavioral. I do think uh, that this fever will cool. Uh, that's my hope. Um, resentment uh, and anger, it's not a governing philosophy. And that's what we seem to have now. And at some point, I hope the voters say, we want something else. And it's tough to see how that's going to come with this two-party system that we have. And the incentives are just all wrong. And, uh, because the, people the worry about their and, own base yeah, and not the... Yeah, and the way we've been gerrymandered so badly and uh, just the way the media plays now and social media and the, you know, the kind of the echo chambers that we have around, it, it's tough to see us getting back uh, where we've been and where we've had to be on some of these, to solve some of these big problems that we, we need to. Uh, but, but I think we're going to have to. Do you see yourself as part of the solution? And could there be a third, a third party or a third way or an independent movement? Would that be something that interests you as you go back to Arizona and <laughs> survey uh, the scene? I yeah. can't, you don't look to me like a guy who's ready to, no, I, I'm to not, quit. No, I've not sworn off uh, elected office in the future. Um, I think the fever will have to cool. Uh, there's not much place for a Republican like me in a party like this right now. I know that. What about as an independent? Um, and, and that's, you know, the saw has always been the old saw, you know, that's the future and it will always be the future. But I, I think that future may be, may be coming um, because uh, it, when you look, this polarization we've seen on the right is also happening on the left. And I, there has to be a huge swath of voters in the middle that are looking for something else. Some states have more of a tradition of doing this. Maine, for example, with uh, Angus King um, and, and Bernie Sanders in Vermont. But uh, I, I do think that um, you'll see more of a movement. I don't know how quick it will go, but, but unless the, the parties realize we have to govern and we have to work together, uh, the voters are going to demand something else. And uh, as 2020 approaches, your name has been mentioned as a potential candidate for president in some sort of third party or bipartisan fusion uh, effort. Is that something that you would uh, consider? That's not something I'm planning. I'll that's say a, that's that. not what I'm asking. I'm asking, <laughs> would it, is it something uh, that you would swear off? I mean, no, it, no, I wouldn't swear it off. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, we'll see where this goes. I do think the president will have a challenge uh, from the Republican Party. I think there should be. Uh, I, I also think that there will be an independent challenge, um, particularly if the Democrats insist on you know, putting somebody up from the, the far left of the party. Um, so I, I, you know, two years is a long time in politics. 
Um, you, you are someone who, uh, it, it, your reverence for the institutions of democracy are clear. I mean, I, I share those, and we have different views on many right. things, but the institutions are what makes our democracy uh, great. How, uh, what's your level of concern about their durability? I am concerned. Uh, I'm, I'm really concerned. Uh, you know, what will happen uh, with regard to, you know, this president if, uh, if Bob Mueller comes back with, with uh, you know, something damning? Um, you know, would how, this Congress how, how, would do anything that, about it? That, that's, uh, that's a concern I have. I do think that, uh, that enough of uh, our colleagues uh, will stand up when they need to. But right now it is concerning to see uh, so many simply say, you know, let's, uh, let's go shirts and skins on this. And um, it's Are you surprised by Speaker Ryan, who you served with, I'm sure he's a friend of yours, um, who has been so? Who had been so critical? Yeah, of, he's, of, Paul's of, in a tough position. He's a good man. Um, I, I've been really concerned about the, the House Intelligence uh, Committee and, and where they've gone, and, and just have really uh, hurt that institution and the, you know, the kind of agreement we've had over a number of years with regard to the intelligence community yes. and the, the interface with Congress there. Uh, so I, I, you know, Paul Ryan has a tough job and. I think he's doing his best. <laughs> Senator, it's, it's good to be with you. Thank you so it's much great to be for here. spending time with us. Thank you. So, Senator, we're, we're here in the office that you're yeah. going to vacate at the end of this year. You, you actually stay here, like so many members. Yeah. Um, I don't want to get into the ins and outs of life living right. at the Senate, but you know, one of the things you hear is that in the old days, right. senators would live here with their families, yeah. and that experience of living together in the community, going right. to little league games, going to mm -hmm. church or synagogue, or, uh, that that was a bonding experience yeah. that no longer exists. It's true, it is. Um, I don't know that it ever can be replicated. I'm not suggesting that uh, we're going to get back to that time, but it is a bigger challenge now. I mean, you can you can go for months if, if you don't meet with senators on committees, for example, if you're not on the same committee. Uh, there are certain Democrats and Republicans that I just have virtually no contact with um, outside of, uh, you know, just greeting them on the floor or, or whatever else. And it's, it's a real problem. Yeah. Um, if, fortunately, for some of us, like I go to the House or the Senate gym, used to be the House gym, and uh, I got to know Dick Durbin and Chuck Schumer when I was in the House, and they would come over to the House gym. And so when I got to the Senate, they both invited me to be part of the Gang of Eight, you know, on the immigration reform. Senator, and so, you, you, you po you've pointed out how bizarre it is that groups of Democrats and Republicans working together these days are called gangs. Yeah, I know. That's, as if that's, they're that's, outlaws. Exactly. It's some kind of illicit activity. <laughs> you joined a gang. <laughs> I, I thought I left gang life behind after the mean streets of Snowflake. <laughs> Apparently not. But it is. A, but unless you have some, some extracurricular activity like, you know, at the gym or on the baseball team, or, you know, sometimes you just have no contact with certain members. And it's easier and to it's, dehumanize each yeah, other if you don't, if you mean, don't yeah, have those kinds of experiences. There's a level of trust that comes. That, and one thing, I just got off a CODEL, or Congressional Delegation mm -hmm. of the Middle East, three Democrats, four Republicans. That's a great way. That still goes on. But some members don't travel. They aren't on the relevant committees or don't like to travel. 
and, and it's, it, it is a real problem. I mean, I thought it was such a problem that I went with Martin Heinrich to an island in the middle of the Pacific and, and marooned ourselves for a week just to prove that Republicans and Democrats can get along yeah. and survive. Have that work. You know, we survived. It's a, <laughs> it's a good diet if you want to try it sometime. <laughs> no, we, we got back and uh, Stephen Colbert, I thought his comment on his show, he ran a clip of it and he said, Flake and Heinrich to prove once and for all that Republicans and Democrats can get along if death is the only option. <laughs> so it's empirically proven now. So I see a picture over here of my old boss, uh, President Obama, and your family yeah. at the White House. How many uh, Republican senators would put a picture of <laughs> themselves with President uh, Obama in their office? You know, not, <laughs> would you pay a price for that? If, uh, if, yeah, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, people, uh, I still get comments about you know, like playing basketball with him. And, uh, and what I, was your relationship? Uh, you went on a couple of trips. You went yeah, to Africa with him. You went, went, you uh, went to Cuba with him. 19, uh, 19 members went to Africa with him. One Republican. <laughs> uh -huh. And then Cuba, I, I went with him there. And I, I'd worked with his administration a lot on Cuba. and went down with Patrick Leahy to do the spy swap that uh, you yeah. know, triggered the normalization of relations. And, and uh, you know, he... We talk. He called me after the, the shooting to make sure I was all right. And after I gave my speech, uh, he, he called. And, and uh, the, the, the nicest thing I did, that he did, I think, is the, the last night he was in the White House, the day before inauguration, uh, he called and just to say that he'd enjoyed working with me. Ah. And uh, I certainly said the same. He didn't have to do that. It was very nice. Uh, you mentioned Cuba. Uh -huh. you, 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 you've been on this uh, program of trying to normalize yeah. relations for a long time. Yeah. Uh, why? <laughs> I've always thought if you want to get rid of the Castro brothers, make them deal with spring break once or twice. <laughs> that, that, that would serve them Have right. people coming down. Yeah. I mean, it's just I, I've thought as a Republican and a conservative, I've always thought, you know, we preach the gospel of travel and commerce and contact as a way to nudge countries toward democracy. Uh, yet with Cuba, we say, no, nah, it won't work there. And the truth is it will work. Uh, certainly policy of isolation for over 50 years hasn't worked. And so I, I've just uh, thought that uh, we're better off uh, by actually exposing them to American values. And the, these, these sanctions are not on Cuba, they're on us. Right. And so I thought, if somebody's going to limit my travel, it should be a communist, not, not my own government. We've taken some steps backward yeah, uh, we have. during the Trump administration. We've withdrawn right. some of our uh, diplomats uh, from there under what are right. murky circumstances. Yeah. And we've, we've expelled some of theirs. Right. Uh, are you concerned about that? Yes, where, I am. Where, where, I mean, where's that going? Well, one... There's going to be a transition in Cuba. It looks like there'll be a non-Castro head of state for, for the first, first time, time in you know, almost 60 yeah. years. And we have just a skeletal staff down there, a political officer, an economic officer, other agencies that uh, usually there aren't. And uh, we're flying blind uh, when the other you know, diplomatic posts uh, from the other countries are uh, beefing up their presence to make sure that they know what's going on. We're pulling back. Now there, you know, obviously we need to treat seriously uh, this, this sonic uh, issue, uh, uh, but uh, there are people willing to go down voluntarily. I don't think we ought to force anybody to that post if they don't want to, but plenty of people are willing to voluntarily and we ought to have them to go. You, um, 
you also you have a lot of uh, uh, African yeah. uh, uh, artifacts here. You've you were you did your mission there. I did your LDS mission uh, in Africa, and you're on the Foreign Relations Committee. Mm -hmm. uh, talk about uh, the standing uh, of America in the world. I saw a Gallup poll that yeah. said our overall standing in the world has declined from 48 to 30. Yeah. Uh, in the last year. What are the practical implications of that? You know, it, the big implications. We've really withdrawn in terms of Africa. We're more than a year into this administration and we still haven't even nominated uh, an assistant secretary for Africa over at the State Department. Uh, ambassadorships are being left vacant, um, important ones. And, and more than that, some of the programs that we have that, that are extremely important in terms of building the kind of trust that we need in these countries so that we can have security relationships, intelligence sharing. Um, I know you've talked about before programs like PEPFAR, mm -hmm. extremely important in Africa. In fact, I was uh, two the years anti ago. The anti-AIDS program that yeah, the Bush administration launched, right. the Obama administration Obama administration continued. Uh, continued with it, and uh, I actually met with Robert Mugabe two years ago. I'd written my master's thesis on Mugabe, <laughs> you know, 30 years before trying to explain his hold on power, and he was still there. We met with him and uh, he was railing against every American president and British prime minister from the Lancaster House of you know, 1980 on through. And when he got to George W. Bush, I stopped him and said, hey, you know, that's a bit unfair. PEPFAR really helped you guys. Yeah, and without did. question. And I'll never forget, he stopped. You know, the worst dictator in Africa, Mugabe, and said, I'll give you that. <laughs> I thought that was a pretty stark admission. Uh, but that's helped in other countries as well to, to have the kind of security arrangements that we need to benefit the United States and to serve our national interests in addition to the most important thing, allevi alleviating a lot of human suffering there. Somewhere around here is a, a bust of Ronald Reagan right here. Yeah. Um, I, I'm, I'm wondering what you think Ronald Reagan would say about where we are right now. <laughs> uh, you know, I, he was the, the optimist. Uh, you know, his, I loved a lot of his speeches, obviously, time for choosing uh, back in the Goldwater campaign was you know, seminal. Launched his speech. career. It, it did, yeah. it did. But uh, his best, I thought, was his, you know, one of his final speeches, talking about the, the city on the hill that we are and, uh, and, you know, the special place that America has in the world. And I can't help but think he would just hear the rhetoric today, this kind of American carnage, uh, kind of dystopian view of the future. And, uh, yeah, it's a far, far it's a leap it. from uh, yeah, the shining city on there. It is. And so, and I, I, uh, so I'm much more of a Reagan kind of optimist, or try to be. So uh, I was in Arizona uh, in the last couple of days, and I ran into a Republican who you know and is uh, uh, an admirer of yours. And he, he said this, he said, I, I really respect uh, Jeff, but why, if he believes so deeply in these things, why doesn't he stay and fight? <laughs> I mean, wouldn't it, it why, don't, why, don't, why doesn't he just fight it out? And if he loses, he loses, but right. take a stand. You know, that's, that's tempting, certainly. Uh, but when you run a campaign, it's not just you. Uh, you've got to get volunteers and, uh, and, and staff, and you've got to have donors. It's a whole effort, and to, to say, to them, I'm not running to win. I'm just going to stand on principle, but we'll surely lose. And then, you know, that's not fair to them.
and, and it's tough to build an organization like that. And I mean, I, I, I certainly felt I could have won a race had I simply been okay with the president and his policies and behaviors. Um, but that was never in the cards. And uh, I just, I, uh, I can't run like that. One of the people who's said that he is running is Sheriff Arpaio, right. uh, who you've had a long running uh, right. set of differences with right. on immigration and other things. Uh, first of all, there's a little bit of irony associated with that, is there not? Him seeking your uh, seat. Yeah, I, I doubt he's going to get you very far. Um, he, he lost uh, uh, by double digits a race in Maricopa County, the Republican stronghold. But uh, I, I don't think that that's the future of the Republican Party. His, his views on immigration, his uh, behavior in terms of uh, Hispanics and what he got in trouble uh, for with the law, and then his yeah. birtherism as well. Um, I just think that that uh, was just This cruel. was something that you were troubled by from the beginning, yes. the birther yeah. movement yeah. Uh, against right. President Obama. You, you, you wrote about this uh, confrontation you had with Tea Party people in your, yeah. in your campaign for the Senate. Right, yeah, that was uh, back in 2012. Um, that, you know, I just I never understood that. I'm uh, kind of trying to disqualify a person, and in this way, and certainly with uh, racial overtones, and and I just thought it was awful. I thought it was awful that the president uh, did it and relied on that really to president, propel himself. President, president Trump. President Trump, and uh, and I think about the only two birthers left for a while were President Trump and Joe Arpaio. And uh, and in perhaps in recognition of that, I don't know what the motivation was. President Trump pardoned him yeah. uh, after he was uh, convicted right. of defying a court order. What was your feeling about that? Oh, I didn't think it was proper. I thought that they should have let uh, justice take its course. In uh, a matter of months, you're going to be packing up your stuff here and moving back to Arizona. Right. When you walk out of this office, will you do it uh, wistfully, huh. sad, with sadness? Uh, what, what will your emotions be when you, when you leave here? Oh, I'm, I'm sure a lot of emotion. One, I've done this 18 years now, and uh, it's time for a new chapter. Uh, but having said that, I'm not leaving because I uh, have ill feelings about the Senate or any of my colleagues here. I love this institution. It's a wonderful institution, and I love my colleagues. Challenged too. as it is. He's certainly. Uh, but this, I mean, you... you can't be around here for very long to understand that these institutions are durable and, and hopefully will endure. And I, whenever I speak to interns or, or, uh, or others, tourists or friends that come through, I tell people, I, I hope you'll go home and, and try to fend off the cynicism about this place. There are good people here on both sides of the aisle. Uh -huh. um, and uh, that's why I get so offended when the President or others refers to people on the Democratic side as losers or clowns, or um, that anybody uses that kind of vitriol that just feeds the cynicism that's already out there. Uh, this is a good place, and um, these institutions, I think, will endure. Um, they're, they're durable enough to withstand the foibles of people there, like there me is who go through it. There is the sense that they're not working. There is the yeah. sense that you guys 
that there's a lot of stasis here. Yeah, and, and that, I, but when you look at the big challenges we've had in the past, I mean, we've gone through, all you have to do is go to the National Archives up in the legislative vault and uh, view, you know, some of the relics and manuscripts and whatnot, talking about what we've gone through as a country. Uh, we've gone through a civil war, revolutionary war to start, dealt with issues like civil rights, women's suffrage, and we've always rose to the occasion. Uh, we've risen to the occasion, and uh, it's, uh, I, I think that some of the issues that we face on the fiscal side are really daunting. Um, on you know, the world stage, there are some real challenges there in terms of our role, but you know, the biggest challenge we have is having a functioning uh, legislative body and administration if, if we have a functioning body here, we can deal with those big problems. Um, and I do think in the end that voters will demand that. They'll, they'll uh, want, again, not people who scream at each other, but people who will actually sit down and, and solve problems. Well, President Reagan would approve of that answer. <laughs> I think so. Good to be Thank with you, Senator. You Thank too. you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.